Hello, and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, first Adam Kotzko will talk about evangelicalism, and then Sheja Sharma will explore the reasons Indians are in the streets demonstrating against their government. First, evangelicalism. Adam Kotzko was on this show a bit over a year ago to discuss his book Neoliberalism's Demons, A Theological Look at the Beast. His essay, The Evangelical Mind, appeared in the print edition of N Plus One magazine and was recently released from behind the paywall. In it, Kotzko talks about what it's like to grow up in that world and what evangelicals believe. To set it up, here's a bit from Amy Grant's 1982 song, I Have Decided. It's indecently catchy, but it also captures something important about born-again theology, as Adam Kotzko will explain. One need not be good to be saved. Okay, now Adam Kotzko. Kotzko teaches in the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College in Illinois. What exactly do we mean by evangelicalism? How would you define it as a, a movement or a theology? Yeah, there's been a lot of movements that have called themselves that over the years. Um, the root meaning of the word is, is simply the Greek term for gospel or good news. And so obviously that appeals to a lot of Christian groups to just identify themselves directly with that. The, what we call evangelicals today, or at least what I call evangelicals today, is a movement that seems to have grown as a reaction to the counterculture of the 60s that tried to make an all-American, easily accessible, easily digestible version of the gospel uh, for the contemporary world in a way that would kind of cut past the historical baggage of like debates over tired theological issues and things like this. And that movement wound up identifying itself pretty strongly with right-wing political causes and, you know, basically with a white backlash as well. It doesn't seem to contain much of the old Jonathan Edwards spirit, you know, the sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, sermon, uh, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one it holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire abhors you. You quote uh, Bill Bright saying, you know, God loves you and has a plan. There's quite a journey from the uh, the old uh, fire and brimstone stuff. Absolutely. Uh, it's very much, I would say, in the spirit of like uh, a self-help type of movement, self-affirmation type of thing. Yes, we're sinners, but that just shows that it's all the more awesome that God loves us so much. There's a pose of humility, I think, but ultimately it's a very kind of self-satisfied and and self-affirming movement. The slogan, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, I think that's very iconic of their attitude. But uh, they're rather judgmental to the rest of us. Yes, yes, they are. Although they judge us primarily for what they think is our self-righteousness, that we don't realize the proper humble, forgiven stance of, of everything, that we're still like proudly hanging on to our illusory moral values. 
Yeah, that was an interesting point you made that uh, secular liberals tend to think of the uh, the evangelicals as the self-righteous ones, but uh, they think we're the self-righteous ones, although I don't want to identify as a liberal there, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, to, to them, everybody outside the movement is a liberal, so we are liberals to them. So you grew up in this world. Could you describe what, what your religious and family background was like? Yeah, my... Um... Parents were both um, born again Christians. Had they grown up that way, or my mom grew up in a United Brethren Church, which is just kind of a conservative, mainline type of denomination, fairly generic as far as I can tell. My dad grew up Catholic, and um, he, as he describes it, he had a pretty uh, wild teenage years and started going to my mom's church for um, Bible study meetings, and eventually. Um, accepted Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, was born again. My parents, they met in that context. My dad originally uh, just recently revealed to me that he wanted to be a minister, but it didn't work out for him to finish college. And so he felt that he could serve God through, you know, supporting a family and having a Christian home. We attended Flint Central Church of the Nazarene. My parents didn't really care for the Nazarene part, and in fact, disliked a lot of the stuff that made it specifically Nazarene. Uh, whatever appealed to them about the church did not involve that. And they were always kind of pushing for more contemporary, like evangelical approaches to things like music that was more like pop or rock music rather than traditional organ music. Um, they were part of like a group that did little drama sketches before the, the church and things like this. All the best practices they had picked up from visiting uh, the first mega church in the evangelical world, uh, Willow Creek. And so that was the milieu that I was in. I was I was at church all practically all day Sunday, um, every Wednesday night, sometimes other nights as well, just like a constant presence. And in fact, my mom and grandma worked as janitors at the church, and so my sister and I often were there with them during the days, uh, helping to clean the place too. So I was absolutely, absolutely immersed in that world. And how and when did you start falling away from it? I think you know, in high school, I started to become a little dissatisfied. You know, partly it was um, the social scene at the church, uh, like a lot of my friends had graduated, and I felt a little alienated from people there. But that opened up the space for me to kind of wonder, like, what about going to other friends from school, like their youth group? I even went to the Catholic youth group a few times, which was very hurtful to my dad uh, because he had turned away from Catholicism. And so he felt that especially was like not acceptable for me to pursue. But I did kind of take an indirect path out of the movement. I wound up converting to Catholicism, which a lot of intellectual evangelicals wind up doing or like kind of wishing they could do, in part because it, it just gave me access to such a greater um, kind of history and intellectual engagement, and there's just like a lot more to it. But like a lot of evangelicals, I was hoping for the Catholic Church to give me what the evangelicals had promised but never really given me, and that's really not the business the Catholics are in. And so I wound up just kind of drifting away from that as well. Now I view academia as kind of my primary community. You know, I grew up Catholic, and uh, it still leaves its mark on me. But um, the world of, of, of rules and hierarchies and institutions, and the very mediated relationship between um, the individual and God, it seems so, so different from the evangelical world you described. I'm curious, you know, your father converting 
away from Catholicism, and then you say that evangelical intellectuals fantasize about converting too. What's the appeal to the evangelicals to convert into that world? It's partly the fact that there is an authority in Catholicism. I think that was really appealing, that you don't have to invent it all yourself from scratch every single time. And the idea that there's an authority that might actually have some moral leverage over people when the Pope came to speak to Congress and John Boehner like wept and then retired like within a few days, it's impossible to imagine an evangelical having that moment of like, oh my God, I just can't do this anymore. I realize this is not compatible with my spiritual convictions or something because every one of them has invented Christianity for themselves in a way that nobody else has a way into critiquing. There's something so deeply American about that kind of evangelical faith that you don't have to follow all those rules. You just have this direct relationship with God. You describe church shopping, which people do. Your parents only accepting some of the Nazarene beliefs and not others. It's all very, very selective, almost a model of individual consumer choice or consumer sovereignty. Right. Yeah, I think that the church shopping metaphor was initially introduced as to be something problematic, that obviously church isn't something you should shop for, you shouldn't treat it as a commodity. But then I think people just wound up feeling that the, the term was actually pretty appropriate for what they were doing. They would actually say, yeah, we're church shopping right now. So I think the consumerism of it and the fact that so much of their identity is tied up with their consumption, you know, the Christian music especially, but like Christian Pilates classes, Christian coffee, whatever, that is kind of how they express their faith in a concrete way. You read that Amy Grant song uh, in an interesting way. You make several points around it. One is that the music, a simple message in a memorable way, meeting the listener where they are. Nothing either aesthetically or, or doctrinally challenging. But there also this, all the music mimics the genres that are in general popular music. You have uh, Christian heavy metal even. I've heard Christian techno. What about that? They're meeting people where they are rather than trying to transform them in, in some profound way? They have an idea that there's the essential transformation, which is this encounter with Christ somehow, and that everything else is absolutely inessential. So if we make any demands on people that are outside of this very core experience, then we're just introducing obstacles and potentially depriving them of their chance to go to heaven, you know. So telling somebody, oh, you need to get right with God and you can't listen to this arbitrary genre of music that you like, it seems like a misfit somehow. Like you need to make sure that, hey, if they like techno music, why not give them a version of techno music that's safe and godly and whatever. It's weirdly very, very, very accommodating until it suddenly abruptly is not. What's that point? What happens? Where and why? Well, as I uh, discuss in the article, it seems like anything that's related to social and physical reproduction, that's the point that's really non-negotiable. So this is why I think, you know, abortion, homosexuality, being against sex outside of marriage or asking like girls to take these creepy pledges to their fathers or something to remain pure, like all of these kind of things center on making sure that the next generation is going to have this perfect kind of suburban Christian uh, consumerist outlook. And anything that gets in the way of that or diverts that, that's the third rail. Abortion or gay marriage seem to have very little to do with each other, but to them, they're part of the same, the same thing, which is making sure that the next generation gets reproduced 
What is it about abortion? I mean, the Catholics have a theological reason of rather late vintage, but they still have a theological vintage, a reason for it. Why is abortion so central to the worldview? Originally, like in the 60s and 70s, um, abortion was dismissed as kind of a Catholic issue among evangelicals or their predecessors, which is really interesting. There's this book by Lauren Berlant uh, called uh, The Queen of America Goes to Washington City. And she talks about the emergence of the fetus as like a television personality, um, like the fact that there was imaging that you could finally see the fetus, that you could reconstruct an image of the fetus. And this image of perfect innocence really appeals to um, the evangelical mind, that somehow there's this completely abstract, completely non-responsive, like not somebody that you have to actually encounter and deal with, but they're a human life that's totally innocent, and they get the moral high ground of defending that life. And the fact that it fits with their agenda of policing and regulating reproduction, I think it means, like, as soon as it was love at first sight, I'm sure, as soon as the evangelicals saw the picture of the fetus, they're like, yes, this is, this is what we're going to live and die for. They seem to lose interest once the, the child is born, actually. Right. I mean, have you ever met a baby? Like, <laughs> <laughs> They're difficult and demanding. Yes. I'm speaking with Adam Kotzko, author of The Evangelical Mind in N Plus One magazine. You write about the moral nihilism of evangelicals, which is a curious concept, um, because most of us think they're hypermoralist. What do you mean? You know, one of the things that liberals naively think they're going to do to win over an evangelical is to point out, but, you know, Jesus supported the poor, or Jesus, you know, was hung around with prostitutes and all this kind of thing. For them, Jesus didn't live a perfect life um, so that we would, like, have a model to imitate Jesus lived a perfect life so that we don't have to. Jesus got the divine, you know, infinite cashback rewards to kind of clear all of our debts. If you're like going too far in imitating Christ or thinking that you can do that, you're like in danger of falling into works righteousness, which is imagining that we can earn salvation. And so it almost becomes a point of pride. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm just forgiven. You know, like if you try to be perfect, you actually wreck it. Being a bad person and knowing it is better than being a deluded liberal who thinks they're righteous. You mentioned, uh, I can't remember who said this, but uh, taking pleasure uh, in the good people burning in hell. What's that about? Yeah, this is kind of a, a trope of evangelical preaching when I was growing up. You know, they're, they're trying to kind of inoculate you against your, your moral sense of like, why should I reach out to this person? You know, they're Christians too. They're good people. Like, why should I harass them to come to our church or why should I look down on them? And they would say, you know, there's going to be a lot of good people in hell, because if they haven't made this specific commitment to Christ in a specific way, it's all of their good works are meaningless. This is meant to be just kind of like a wake up call. But I think a lot of people took it the other way of like, yeah, screw those good people. We're going to enjoy watching them in hell. Does one want to be virtuous? Does one need to be virtuous? Or just one lives a, a very ordinary life? And since you're born again, you, you have a get out of hell free card. It seems like that's that's the direction they take it, that we're relieved of this burden of kind of um, moral striving. You might have projects like, you know, trying not to drink or something like that. Some guy was trying to witness to me on the train, and I asked him what had changed in his life uh, when he accepted Christ, and he said that he used uh, fewer swear words. <laughs> I'm just like, God had to become human and die so that you could use fewer swear words? Like, this seems like disproportionate. I'm not a Christian, but I have a lot of respect for it. I mean, it's like, in many ways, there's a great deal of profundity to uh, 
Christian theology and the history of Christianity, and this all seems so banal and, and painfully banal. Um, what happened to make this? Yeah, I, I mean, they just convinced themselves, I think for reasons that you could read as positive, like this inclusivity thing or of not wanting to put up arbitrary obstacles to people or trying to give people direct access to God. That all sounds really good. And it could maybe have been taken in a cool way, but they somehow got set down this path where that just became a a recipe for conformism and kind of self-congratulation. People have talked to me about potentially writing a book about evangelicals or uh, my experience with them. And I feel like, in a way, there's just not enough there to do it. At the end of the day, it's a pretty simplistic formula. That's part of its appeal, but it also means like there's just only so far you can get with it. I guess it'd be a work of sociology more than um, philosophy or theology. Right. Now, what about the megachurches? Um, you, know, you mentioned you, uh, having grown up in the, with the Nazarenes, but uh, what about the megachurches and their, their TV shows and you know their, their, their high production values? Is there a theology behind that? Yeah, I think it's just uh, the same theology of immediate accessibility and of making people feel like as long as they can get people in the pews and kind of identifying as Christian, they've already won their victory because all they want is for people to identify as Christian. And so making it into this attractive, polished, kind of comfortable entertainment product uh, with a self-help chaser. I have not personally been to Willow Creek, but um, over the years, uh, more and more churches kind of started imitating those methods and like having very professional sound systems and like projection of videos and things like this. And like they're really good performers. Um, they do a really good job. Like your average church a large church probably has like a band that could be like professional session musicians. It's really amazing the kind of musical talent that they've cultivated, especially all for the purpose of just getting people to say, yeah, I'm a Christian and to go about their lives um, in a non-offensive way. It just, it, it's yet another wasted effort, I think. But these also many of these must be pretty profitable enterprises, at least for the leadership. You know, I just watched the HBO series, The Righteous Gemstones, which I had put off because I thought it would either piss me off because it's too much like my experience or piss me off because they got things wrong. Um, and it turns out that it's more, you know, it's not really in the milieu that I'm familiar with, although there's similarities. The guy from Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, he was never ostentatious about his wealth, like, like the kind of Pentecostal preacher would be or the prosperity gospel preacher. The prosperity gospel, I think, is a related but somewhat separate thing from this like mainstream evangelical. And I don't know where the money goes. Does it get reinvested in the sound system or in like expanding to a new church? It doesn't seem like it's going to the pastors in quite the same way that we're familiar with from like televangelists. Creflo Dollar has you know a private jet and multiple cars and that sort of thing, but uh, these guys don't. Not that I know of, or, at least, or they're hiding it. If so. Yeah, it's not quite the prosperity gospel thing where God like showers down the blessings on you. There is a kind of like middle class asceticism, I think, to mainstream evangelicalism. Um, so yeah, I would actually be, I'm curious where all this money goes. And now politics. A lot of people scratch their heads over the uh, the fondness that evangelicals show towards Donald Trump, who is about the most unchristian person you could imagine in any sense. You write about um, the authoritarian strain uh, in the politics of evangelicals. So what is it that draws him to Trump? What is it about that authoritarian strain? On the one hand, I think you, if you asked a lot of evangelicals, they would say, 
yes, we realize he's a flawed person or something. They'll really downplay it. You know, like he, he's not a perfect guy, but, but then also that, that since it's all about forgiveness, that they can overlook that. Right. And uh, I mean, it's all about Hillary too. Um, it's all about Hillary. Who is by all accounts, a fairly faithful Methodist. Right. That's the irony. Like she's a lifelong Christian. You know, she started out as a Republican. She did more than anybody else to kind of make Democrats more conservative um, and more respectful of the evangelical issues. And her repayment for all of these efforts has been to be just relentlessly demonized by the right wing and especially by the evangelicals. She was probably the only Democrat who could lose to Trump not due to anything personal to her, because this persona of Hillary um, on the right is completely fantasized and made up. No evangelical is going to break from their comfortable Republican routine to vote for Hillary, even if it's Donald Trump on the top of the ticket. It's just unthinkable. So he gives them judges. Is that what they love about him? Right. Yeah. He gives them judges and he gives them symbolic recognition, like the moving the embassy to Jerusalem and stuff like that. My mom has actually specifically cited that as like a cool thing that he did that I think she expected me to think it was cool too. I'm not sure why. Israel is important because it fits into this narrative of biblical prophecy for them about like what's going to, all the pieces are going to kind of fall into place for the end of time to come. And so Trump is bringing them closer to that as well with this Jerusalem thing. They've actually compared him to a ruler who's mentioned by the biblical prophets, uh, Cyrus uh, the Great of Persia, who helped uh, the Jews rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They kind of have to come up with elaborate theological justifications uh, for this, but they have. And I don't think that they're open to persuasion anymore. And what about the authoritarian strain? They definitely do not value the norms of democracy insofar as that would involve the majority, really, because the majority actually is a bunch of sinners or deluded fools. The judgeship and the Supreme Court and things like this appeal to them as a mechanism because it's isolated from democratic accountability and allows them to propagate their moral message without needing to really persuade anybody, without needing to convince people on terms other than their own that they should support this movement, that yeah, they get, uh, and they probably view it as like saving all of us from ourselves because we're doing all these depraved things we shouldn't do. And if the government at least restrains us from doing that, then that, then they've done their job or something. What's the future if, of, of this tendency? I mean, uh, we see a rising number of seculars in American society, or at least uh, people who don't adhere to any particular denomination. The mainline Protestant churches are all losing membership. How are the evangelicals holding up? It's hard for me to get statistics that I view as meaningful because evangelical is imprecisely defined and they tend to, you know, want to just use it as generically Protestant or something like that. But my sense are that, is that there's two directions that it could go. One is that my generation finally says enough is enough and moves on with their lives, either become secular or move on to a different kind of Christianity. And I know a lot of people who have succeeded in, in doing that. I'm one of them. But a lot of people have, have taken their lives in a lot of different directions. I worry that just as like my generation doesn't want to move out to the suburbs when they have kids, but that kind of magnetically pulls us because that's like the easiest thing to do if you have kids. I feel like um, the easiest thing for them to do to avoid conflict and to just like remain in this community they feel comfortable with will be to just kind of slide back into the evangelical fold, 
um, especially because they have all these activities to keep your kids busy or whatever. And so it could manage to kind of kick this can down the road for one more generation. And as for the Trump thing, people will simply forget about it. I'm sure that within 20 years or something, we're going to find out that Trump was actually a secret liberal um, and that the next guy is the real thing. And it'll be as though it never happened. This moment when they're still kind of openly supporting Trump, this is the moment when there's a chance that there will be enough of a revulsion in the younger generation to kind of make a serious dent. But if this window closes, then I think it'll just kind of perpetuate itself indefinitely. And finally, what's it like to leave evangelical world? Were you racked with guilt? Did you lose friends? Did you get estranged from your family? How how emotionally difficult is it to leave? Um, It... It's hard. I think it's still hard because I can't have an honest conversation with my parents about it to a certain extent. Like one Christmas, my mom was um, asking me, you know, when do you want to go to church uh, when you come back? And I'm like, I would prefer not to go at all. And she was shocked at that. And so obviously something about this message has not come through. I took a very gradual path out, you know, going via the Catholics and then via kind of studying theology and it eventually just kind of petered out. In terms of making a dramatic break, I guess joining the Catholic Church was fairly dramatic, but I was still going to the evangelical college and stuff like that, too. So I didn't show the courage to really make a clean break. And so now it's just taken so long that in a way it just, I don't know. I don't know how it feels. Obviously, um, I'm feeling something here, but not articulating it. If I were your psychoanalyst, this is where I'd push, but this is radio, so I won't. That was Adam Kotzko. You can find his essay, The Evangelical Mind, on the N Plus One magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the Kyrie from Bach's B minor Mass, performed by Helmut Rilling and the Bach Collegium Stuttgart. I needed an antidote to all that evangelical banality. Next, India. Narendra Modi, Prime Minister of India since 2014, emerged from an Islamophobic Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, which is associated with an organization known as the RSS. I'm not going to try to pronounce either in the full original. Founded in 1925, the RSS is often described as one of the oldest fascist parties in the world. Modi's government passed a new anti-Muslim citizenship law, which has brought masses of Indians into the streets to protest. Here to explain it all is Sheja Sharma, a professor of international studies at DePaul University in Chicago. You were just in India. Demonstrations happening across the country every day? Yes, uh, mostly north, northeast, west of India, some in Kerala, which is in the south. Yeah, protests happening across India. And it's not just Muslims who are uh, outraged, right? This is... uh... No, it actually started as a student protest. Muslims are certainly part of the protest uh, across India because they are most directly threatened by this law. But there's a very broad coalition of 
civil society groups, human rights groups, students, uh, young professionals, a very, very broad coalition. Okay, so let's talk about what set it off. It was the well, obviously there's a lot of issues around Modi, but the citizenship law was what's the sparked it all, right? Yes. So the citizenship law, there are two laws that the government has always said are going to work together. One was called CAB. That was the acronym, the Citizenship Amendment Bill, which is now the Citizenship Amendment Act. It's been passed by Parliament. And the other bill that was due to be introduced in Parliament but hasn't been yet is called the NRC, uh, the National Register of Citizens. So these two laws sort of play into each other because the Citizenship Amendment Bill, which is designed to give non-Muslim refugees automatic citizenship in India, is part of increasing the Hindu voter base of the ruling party. And the National Register of Citizenship is going to be a way to enumerate basically how many Muslims, how many Hindus, how many Sikhs are going to be in the country. And anybody who doesn't meet the criteria for citizenship, which is stacked against Muslims, is going to be declared not a citizen of India. Would this apply to like Muslims who are born in India? It would apply to all Muslims in India. It doesn't have to be just Muslims who come from neighboring countries. It would apply to existing Muslim minorities. This is so frankly and extraordinarily racist um, that it, it's kind of shocking to listen to. Modi had been drifting in this direction, but was this, this move just too much for some people? That's what really got them into the streets? Well, there were two things that happened that tipped this movement um, into the limelight. So first of all, if I could back up a little... Modi had tried similar sort of anti-Muslim baiting when he was chief minister of Gujarat, which is a state in the west part of India. This had sort of culminated in 2002 in a program of anti-Muslim killings that swept that state over February of 2002. It seemed to give him additional popularity in that state, which is Hindu dominance. And it was on that basis that he came to power. So he was always very clear that he would continue the same policies on a national basis. These two bills were introduced when he was elected the second time to parliament as prime minister, but with an overwhelming majority. So there were no coalition partners that he had to appease or keep in mind as he was sort of implementing this agenda. So as soon as he won in late April 2019, the CAB, the Citizenship Amendment Bill, was introduced in Parliament. His home minister was also the state home minister when he was chief minister of Gujarat, is a person with tremendous power. Um, the home ministry in India has jurisdiction over police, paramilitary groups, security, as well as everything related to the population, the census, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a very powerful ministry. And the Home Minister is a guy called Amit Shah, who is also from Gujarat. So both these people together sort of introduced this CAB bill, and it was passed almost with no debate within two days. And this is really shocking because it's a very controversial bill. It completely upends India's refugee system and makes religion a criteria for giving asylum to people. So when that passed, it had to be signed by the president. The president signed it. On midnight, the day after it was passed. This is also really unprecedented. And I think it was the way it was passed, the speed with which it was passed, and the introduction of religion into the question of citizenship, which is 
completely unconstitutional. The combination of factors really tipped things over the edge and people started protesting on a very small scale at first. There were two universities in India. One was the Aligarh Muslim University and the other was the Jamia Nulia Islamia. Now, these are both sort of minority-dominant universities, though they're open to people from all religions. The students started protesting. It was interesting that the government responded with force and the police entered both campuses without permission from the vice chancellors and started attacking students. The bill that was passed and then it was uh, violence against students who were completely within their rights to protest peacefully that then snowballed into this protest all over India. Of course, um, Modi's party, the BJP, and it's got this associated RSS. I mean, these people have a long history of anti-Muslim bigotry, uh, Hindu nationalism. How popular is that agenda with the Indian public? This is certainly no surprise that uh, Modi would tend in this direction. No, you're absolutely right. It's not a surprise. He's always been uh, known as an RSS member. Um, as you said, the RSS has been around since 1920. They've been admirers of fascism. They think that the Nazi experiment was a very good one. You know, so they've held these repugnant views all through their history. For a while, they were banned in India after one of their members killed Mahatma Gandhi. And then in the 1960s, the ban was lifted. And since then, what they've done is they've built up like a really strong ground root movement in India, which is to say they recruit young students, they train them in this ideology. They've held camps and summer schools in Europe, in North America, for members of the Indian diaspora, because that's where a lot of their funding comes from. How important is the Indian diaspora to uh, the funding of the party? It is very central to the funding of the party. In fact, last year, the head of the Sun Parivar held a big conference in Chicago to which all the sort of leadership of the Indian American community in the U.S. was invited, including state legislators from Illinois, which is the state where I live in. And there was also a grassroots mobilization sort of writing to them and asking them not to attend this conference because these sorts of conferences and supposedly sort of religious events are held to raise funds for the BJP. How much support is there among the Indian population for this agenda? Quite a lot. Quite a lot among the Indian diaspora because, as you know, identity politics and especially sort of religious identity politics especially for first-generation immigrants, is very important. And they see that as a way to remain connected to their homeland. Unfortunately, progressive causes are not as organized and don't pop into the uh, Indian diaspora as much. This citizenship law and then the, the, the catalog of the population, the census by religion, this all sounds like it's tending, I, I hate to use this language because it seems alarmist, but it does seem like it's tending in some kind of Nazi direction. Is that alarmist to think that's where it's all going? No, for a couple of reasons. When I said there's a historical precedent for the BJP and the Sang Parivar, which is a loose coalition of organizations that feed into the BJP. Some are cultural, some are religious, some are educational. So together they're called the Sang family, the Rashtra Sang Sevak Sang, the RSS. They have a history of pro-Nazi and pro-fascist ideologies, also anti-Muslim bigotry, which has translated into a lot of death and destruction. They were historically in favor of the division of India on religious grounds. 
uh, which is to say that they wanted all the Muslims to live in a separate nation. And when the first Prime Minister of India, when India became independent, said that India would be secular and would welcome people from all religious backgrounds, they were very unhappy about it. And in fact, that's the reason Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated by one of its members. So one, there's a historical reason why a lot of their ideologies seem similar to Nazi-era ideologies. Secondly, the language that they use in order to demonize Muslims is very reminiscent of Nazi. So they talk about infiltrators, they talk about vermin, they talk about cleansing. This is all language that was used during the Nazi era. I don't think it originated with them, but it's very reminiscent of them. And Modi and his party have never disavowed this part of this agenda. They've denied it. They've said, you know, no, 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 we're not anti-Muslim, blah, blah. But all their policies have been very targeted against Muslims. What accounts for the uh, the surge in popularity for this agenda uh, over the last decade or so? That's a complicated question. I think part of it is you see a sort of neoliberal India where the vast sort of bulk of middle class is growing and identity politics is very popular among them in the sense that the priorities shift from sort of meeting basic needs to seeing identity as part of sort of consumerism. So the symbols and the signs of Hindu identity are very popular among them. Secondly, it's also part of a very calculated information campaign or disinformation campaign that the Sun Parival runs in India. They own media channels. They own pretty much newspapers. The government in their first tenure implemented a law which said that, um, you know, they had the right to pull government advertisements from newspapers that they felt were not friendly to them. So the media, ha- the media in India right now, apart from a few sort of independent uh, mass newspapers and TV channels, is completely dependent on government advertising. And so they tow very slavishly to the government viewpoint. And the result of that is that there's no sort of alternative viewpoints that are allowed to emerge in the public sphere in India. Since the majority of India is Hindus, almost 80% of the population is Hindu. The BJP finds very strong support among those sectors. Uh, and a third reason is the rise of social media. So WhatsApp groups and these false videos and messages that are circulated through WhatsApp groups is a great way for the BJP to tap into Hindu groups and sort of um, engender support for their schemes. And you see that in a lot of cases, especially when people might not read the newspapers, but they'll watch TV and they'll be, you know, on their mobile phone sort of checking their WhatsApp messages. So uh, they, the, uh, the party as a whole has tapped into the social media trend. I'm speaking with Sheja Sharma, Professor of International Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. And is there a a class profile to this support? Is it rural poor, urban middle class, uh, the high-tech people? Um, How does that uh, shape up? It has very broad-based support, the BJP. Um, So among the diaspora, of course, they tap into uh, the techies, they tap into professionals. But within India itself, it's lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, sort of business uh, people who own businesses, 
Because one of the things the BJP has done, you know, to give the devil its due, is really try to clean up endemic corruption among India's bureaucracy. And they've tried to formulate very pro-business policies. So um, the big, the large business houses are very friendly to the BJP, the Ambani's, the Adani's, which are, you know, some of the richest people in Asia uh, who have prospered under BJP rule uh, and have very deep pockets and a great deal of influence. So even they support the BJP. Interestingly, the area of uh, areas of India that don't support the BJP are uh, urban, heavily urban, not village or semi-rural based. And so the BJP has tried to demonize them by calling them urban Naxalites. The term Naxalite refers to sort of Maoist group in India from the 1960s, 1970s. So they're called urban Maoists. Intellectuals are demonized. Historians, they've tried to control, um, in particular, uh, university history and political science departments and replace the faculty with faculty of their choice. And they've been able to do that because a lot of universities are funded by the central government. So those areas are not those sort of sections of the population, students, faculty, urban people, certain kinds of professionals with advanced degrees, they are not in favor of the BJP. But apart from them, they have very broad-based support. And it seems that international business um, is very fond of Modi. I mean, from the editorial pages of Financial Times, there's a picture of Modi hugging Mark Zuckerberg. So he's got a lot of support from uh, influential people abroad who are not just part of the Indian diaspora. I'm not sure how much of that support is for Modi and how much of that is coming from a desire to tap into India's market. So uh, what Modi and his party have done is they've continued this neoliberalization uh, project that the Congress party started. And one of the reasons why Modi went from being an international pariah uh, after the Gujarat program to being fettered at the White House in Europe, etc., is because companies the world over want to tap into India's market. So it's greed more than anything else why they're willing to overlook his ideological and political agenda. However, Modi did make a couple of missteps with the Indian economy. So in his first term, he introduced a system of demonetization to try and clean up, or so he claimed, black money uh, from circulation in India. And one of the results of this demonetization policy uh, was that um, the informal sector of India's economy, which is almost 40% of India's economy, tanked horribly. Then he introduced a general sales tax, which again really brought the economy down. In his second term now, India's economy is still slowing down quite a bit, uh, so much so that the IMF issued a warning about it. And so he's not doing so well on the economic front, even though that's his claim to sort of legitimacy at an all-India level. So, you know, I'm not sure how how true it is that Mark Zuckerberg is very friendly with him. But yes, I mean, that's certainly the claim that he makes, that um, business the world over loves him. However, you know, the facts don't bear that out. Yeah, well, uh, that photo of, of him hugging Zuckerberg, you know, whatever Zuckerberg feels in his heart of hearts. That's a very effective picture. Mm -hmm. Politically, the BJP lost a state election the other day, right? And they've lost several other state elections recently. How important is that? They've lost five states recently. The people are sort of claiming that that's a trend. 
However, we have to remember that, you know, like eight months ago, he won an overwhelming majority at um, the national level. So state governments are often decided by much more local factors than national governments. It's a heartening sign, certainly, that the BJP is losing, especially the election that Modi, uh, Modi's party lost yesterday in Bihar, which is one of the states that he was supposed to, his party was supposed to be very strong. He campaigned in that state about on eight different occasions. Amit Shah, his, his home minister, campaigned there, and they still went ahead and lost. So um, that's a really good sign. I'm not sure if it adds up to a trend. Yeah, I saw some uh, excitable people on Facebook uh, claiming that uh, this is the beginning of the end for Modi. These demonstrations in particular, the beginning of the end for Modi. Uh, is, <laughs> is there grounds for hope or is that uh, getting ahead of things? I think it's getting a little ahead of themselves. I think a more heartening sign is that these demonstrations against the CAA and RC are taking place not just in the big metros, not just in Mumbai and Delhi and, and so on, but in smaller places like Nagpur, in uh, Pune, in Bangalore, in Muzaffarabad, um, uh, in Bhagalpur. You know, these are very smallish towns. Some of these towns are uh, in Muslim-majority districts, some are not. The fact that people are coming out in the thousands to protest against these, bill, against these bills is a sign, I think, that Modi's finally sort of overstepped the mark in terms of carrying out this uh, political agenda. And if people who go on these marches sort of remember why they're out on the streets protesting against Modi at the time when they next go and vote in a central or state election, that will add up to something good. Right now, I think it's too premature to say that people are finally turning against him. And what kinds of people did you see uh, when you were uh, in the demonstrations in Delhi? Were they, what were the demographics? People, what, what was the, the social class and age and all that sort of thing? Yeah, so this is very interesting. Um, I went to two different demonstrations. One was in support of the Jamia Millia University and one was against the two bills. And I had expected it would be the usual ragtag sort of left groups, you know, the teachers' unions, the student unions. But um, there were people uh, from old Delhi, uh, the part of Delhi that is Muslim majority. There were people who were illiterate. There were women's groups coming out sort of heavily veiled and carrying banners against the NRC. There were lots and lots of students who had clearly never been on a demonstration or a march before. They were on their phones sort of tweeting and putting pictures on central on um, social media. So it was a really diverse group, which was really heartening, and I had not expected that. I had thought it would be, you know, the usual suspects, maybe a few hundred of them. And then there was another demonstration the day after I went, uh, so December 15th in India Gate, which is central Delhi, uh, which was attended by a few opposition party leaders. But even then, tons of students coming, not just from Delhi, but from areas around Delhi. So it's been very surprising to see um, a lot of Muslims, a lot of Dalits uh, and Dalit groups. So Dalits, as you know, are the people who were called untouchables by Mahatma Gandhi, and they've become a real political force in India recently. Um, and uh, Dalit groups sort of showed up against Modi also, because in the Hindu social scheme of things, they are seen as outcasts. 
right? So they've been organizing politically and fighting Modi as well. And um, on Friday, uh, last Friday, uh, there was uh, a big peaceful protest at the Jama Masjid, which is the biggest mosque um, in India. And the head of the Dalit movement, who was being sought by the police, somehow managed to give them the slip, show up at the Jama Masjid and give a speech <laughs> before he was detained. So there's a kind of um, coalition building going on among Muslims, among Dalits, among students, which I think is going to be much more broad-based and much more effective than, say, you know, a couple of state elections. Finally, um, this legislation, Modi's government, the politics, the RSS, they fit into a global pattern. You know, we've got Bolsonaro in Brazil, we've got Trump in the United States, you know, uh, Orban in Hungary. Yeah, Erdogan in Turkey. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. global authoritarian, xenophobic, um, uh, uh, fundamentalist kinds of politics. What's your understanding? Why is this happening? Do you have any thoughts on just you know, how, how the, the Modi phenomenon fits into the larger global picture? I think anybody who sort of claims to be a thinker these days is thinking about, you know, what, what do these groups have in common? Why are they taking place at the, same, at the same time? There are a couple of thoughts I have. You know, one is sort of the very obvious reason that people point out, which is rising inequality, right? Uh, rising aspirations meets rising inequality. And governments are less able to deliver because, the way in which global economies are structured. And so it's easier to appeal to identity politics than to actually uh, make an intervention into national economies and national politics and things like that. So, I mean, that's certainly one reason. It's true as far as it goes. But I also think there's the politics of influence, which is to say, if right-wing groups do well in one country, other right-wing uh, parties in other countries take heart from that and try to imitate their methods. And unfortunately, one of the methods that is being used by right-wing parties everywhere is appealing to these sectarian or ethnic divisions and uh, trying to sort of mobilize people against different groups of outsiders or those who are perceived to be outsiders. And these vary from country to country. You know, it could be Jews in one country, it could be um, gypsies in another country, it could be refugees in a third country, and it's Muslims in a lot of countries. So um, I think uh, certainly there's a sort of method to this madness that uh, right-wing parties are tapping into. Sort of uh, the international of nationalists. Yes, exactly, exactly. And they're learning from each other. They are learning from each other, and I think social media is certainly a part of that. That was Sheja Sharma, Professor of International Studies at DePaul. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Well, let's go out with this. We don't need no fascist groove thing by Heaven 17 from 1981. It was banned by the BBC for allegedly libeling the newly inaugurated Ronald Reagan. Till next week, bye. That funky chain dance Brother, sister, shoot your best We don't need this fascist groove thing Brothers, sisters We don't need that fascist groove thing Brothers, sisters We don't need that fascist groove thing 
history will repeat itself. Crisis point when in the hour. Counterforce will do no good. <laughs> 